Our virtual 2022 National Us Against Alzheimer's Summit brings together leaders from across the country working to end Alzheimer's disease. The summit explores solutions to the most pressing challenges facing the movement, also serving as an opportunity for thought leadership and partnership development. For more information about the Us Against Alzheimer's Summit, go to usa2summit.org. Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. It's no secret that sleep is important, and that most of us don't get enough of it. According to a customized A-list sleep survey for Us Against Alzheimer's Brain Health Academy, 52% of those surveyed worried about not getting enough sleep, and yet 50% don't mention it as a concern to their doctors. Joining us to explain the science behind the brain-sleep connection is Dr. Eric St. Louis, co-director of the Center for Sleep Medicine and director of the Mayo Sleep Behavior, and Neurophysiology Research Laboratory at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. St. Louis, thank you for joining us. Can you describe the breadth of your research and how it's interrelated? Thank you, Meryl, for having me today. And yes, sleep has been found over the last couple of decades to be an essential aspect of human health and very important to brain function. Our laboratory is particularly focused on analyzing the human sleep condition of REM sleep behavior disorder, which has been found in particular to be related to neurodegenerative disease and risk for developing this. The hope is through better characterization of this human sleep disorder that we'll be poised to intervene earlier with interventions that might help prevent dementia or Parkinson's disease in the future. Our particular research interest here is focused on this condition with the hope that future treatments might help these patients avoid the more devastating consequences of neurodegenerative disease. So let's get down to the basics of this sleep-brain connection and why it tops the list as a modifiable risk factor. Great question. It's really been found that the relationship between sleep and brain health and neurodegenerative disease risk is bidirectional one. And it remains somewhat unclear whether sleep disturbance is a symptom of underlying brain disease early on. There are some diseases where that model seems to be the case, such as REM sleep behavior disorder. On the other hand, it is thought that sleep may be a modifiable risk factor for the development of neurodegeneration, particularly in terms of the quantity and quality of sleep that we get. And a couple of main causes of disturbance there are insufficient sleep, so not getting enough quantity or duration of sleep on a regular basis, as we might see with either voluntary forms of sleep deprivation and sleep restriction, shift work, or a variety of other conditions that curtail sleep, such as chronic insomnia. On the other hand, problems with sleep-related breathing have been tied to dementia risk, particularly as we see in obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. And there it may be that deprivation of oxygen through recurrent apneic events during sleep may be one problem. On the other hand, the disruption of sleep quality that goes along with sleep apnea is also a very likely part of this. 
To what degree are the other modifiable risk factors for dementia, like exercise and diet, linked to a good night's sleep? We do think that regularity of sleep behaviors is a very important aspect of sleep health. So trying to regularly assure a regular bedtime and enough time in bed. If one has too late of a mealtime or sometimes the timing of exercise right before sleep, these are aspects that can disturb the onset of sleep and lead to a poor night's sleep. Other habits like alcohol use or caffeine too late in the day are other common behaviors that may interfere with obtaining good quantity and quality of sleep. Doctor, these days so many of us are walking around as the quantified self with personal readouts on our phones or on our watches. What vital signs like body temperature and heart rate are connected to the various levels of sleep, light sleep, deep, or REM sleep? A general comment about this is that our personable wearables are probably uh, best for just reinforcing good positive sleep behaviors. And while they're verified as generally, fairly good at verifying the quantity or overall amount of sleep. Most of the wearable platforms have not yet shown any great validation for truly measuring the depth or stability of sleep. So to say something about this, our sleep is generally divided into two stages, non-rapid eye movement or non-REM sleep, which is particularly important for brain health since it's the stage where we get slow wave sleep, and that has been linked to processes in the brain that tend to wash out toxins that accumulate during wakefulness. So in other words, during our slow-wave sleep, it is thought that this so-called glymphatic clearance functioning may help us get rid of some of the toxic substances such as proteins, amyloid, and others that may accumulate and relate to the neurodegenerative disease processes. On the other hand, rapid eye movement sleep is also important not only for cognition, but particularly for regular sleep hygiene and overall bodily homeostasis. So the two combined stages of sleep are very important and are more difficult to index or measure by our personable wearables. You had asked too about heart rate and body temperature. Wearables have been less accurate perhaps at measuring these variables unless they're more clinical grade type devices designed for that purpose. So in general, personable wearables that try to measure heart rate in particular haven't yet shown much validation for measuring sleep-related processes. Doctor, if we're talking about measurements, what is more beneficial, six hours of deep sleep, if that's possible, or eight hours of broken sleep? This whole question of sleep duration is a bit enigmatic, and our National Sleep Foundation experts addressed this a few years ago through largely expert opinion and a review of available evidence. The number one question that I regularly get in the clinic that's hard to answer, which is, doctor, how much sleep do I need? And we really think that the patient themselves probably has the best way of estimating their own personal or individualized sleep need. 
many of us fall short on this. And in general, we would say that the average adult needs somewhere between seven and eight hours of sleep nightly, at least six hours in most cases. And many of us fail to get this. One way to look at this in your personal life is if during the work week, you sleep shorter and on the weekends extend your sleep, that can be one obvious sign that your body and brain are trying to signal to you that you need more regular sleep on a regular basis. Also, the use of a morning alarm, which most of us use, is also another sign that that's an effort to awaken us from sleep that we may need. And it can be the best sign of sufficient sleep for an individual if you're able to awaken spontaneously without the use of an alarm. So a personal experiment to try on this basis is to try to extend one's sleep on a regular basis until you reach that sweet spot where you're able to fall and stay asleep well and awaken in the morning feeling refreshed and without the use of an alarm. So when people say, I plan to catch up on my sleep this weekend, is there such a thing as catching up on sleep? There is at least short term, but further mounting evidence from sleep restriction experiments does suggest that chronic erosion of regular sleep probably does have consequences for both brain functioning and overall bodily health. So while it's a tough one for all of us to find more time in the day to sleep, trying to adhere to that regular sleep schedule, aiming for seven, eight hours, or for in some cases, more. Some people are longer sleepers, some people shorter sleepers, just physiologically. After that experiment I described of trying to attain a sufficient amount of sleep for oneself without the use of an alarm, that can be the best way to find out what your personal sleep need may be. In your clinic, you must be seeing long-term COVID health issues of high anxiety and stress. In what ways might they be warning signs of sleep deprivation? There have been several studies, largely to date survey-based, that have analyzed, is there such a thing as COVID somnia or some kind of sleep disturbance caused specifically by the virus and viral infection of the body? And the evidence for this has been mixed, but points toward the factors you mentioned that insomnia, that is chronic disruption of the ability to fall asleep or stay asleep, tends to be the number one sleep disorder we've seen emerging from the COVID pandemic thus far. But there have been at least case descriptions of other interesting disruptions of sleep. And so I would say in general, an individual might have a sleep disorder if they experience a diversity of different problems with sleep, particularly trouble falling or staying asleep chronically. The definition for the state of insomnia would be at least three times a week and for at least three months. Frequent snoring or heavy snoring, snorting or gasping oneself awake during sleep can be a sign of sleep apnea. Persisting sleepiness during the day where one may inadvertently doze, nod off, or have an excessive napping need might signal a hypersomnolence condition. The uncomfortable urge to move the legs before sleep is restless leg syndrome in many cases. And disruptive behaviors during sleep that we call parasomnias, particularly acting out of dreams, are all signs of sleep disturbance that might signify the need to see one's own personal physician and seek referral to a sleep medicine clinic. To what degree can lack of sleep mimic symptoms of dementia? There is experimental evidence, fairly rich evidence, suggesting that both acute sleep deprivation as well as chronic sleep deprivation or sleep restriction 
both pose some hazards to cerebral and normal brain functioning. It's not yet worked out exactly whether this form of chronic sleep restriction or sleep deprivation causes dementia per se, but there is growing evidence that there's overlap between the type of deficits we see in memory and cognitive functioning that we see with sleep deprivation and the type that we see in dementia. There's also rich epidemiologic evidence that either too little sleep or too much sleep might be associated with dementia risk. So I do think it's important to address those symptoms and signs when they're present and seek evaluation with a clinician. What's going on for adults as they age who report they experience more sleep problems than when they were young? Probably a diversity of things. First off, we do think that normal brain aging is associated with measurable changes in the overall quality of sleep in particular. It's less clear that older individuals need less sleep, and it's thought now that that's probably an urban myth. But older individuals, even who are normal, have trouble getting enough sleep because there's some basic changes in our sleep physiology with normal aging. And these include greater difficulty falling asleep, greater difficulty staying asleep with more frequent arousals embedded within measurable sleep. For example, when we measure polysomnograms and look at features that we call sleep architecture, which include the stability of sleep, the number of arousals per hour, and the depth of sleep, and so on, we do see with normal aging that there's greater arousability to the brain with more frequent arousals from sleep even naturally, and a lesser amount of deeper sleep that the brain seems to get. So these are normal changes with aging that all of us tend to fight against to some degree as we get older. And then, of course, the other thing in the background is many sleep disorders become more frequent with age, in particular sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea, which also contributes to this tendency. So the older individual who is having excessive trouble falling or staying asleep is more prone to develop chronic insomnia and may have underlying sleep disordered breathing as a contributing cause to this. And these are really highly treatable aspects that can really help the aging individual get better sleep if they do have a definable sleep disorder that we can help. This would be a perfect spot to hit pause on the science behind the brain-sleep connection and the great advice you've shared. Join us when we continue with part two of our conversation with Dr. Eric St. Louis as we learn about the pros and cons of sleep aids and whether sleep researchers can reprogram a night owl or someone who wakes at 3 a.m. and can't get back to sleep. Once the lights are turned off, whether there are any distracting elements in the bedroom environment, such as TVs or radios, personal digital devices or iPads, or pets in bed, or a snoring spouse, or a spouse that's exhibiting abnormal sleep behaviors, all can be environmental sleep disturbance sources. That's it for this edition. I'm Meryl Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Us Against Alzheimer's is partnering with the American Academy of Lifestyle Medicine to create Brain Health Academy, a series of free evidence-based courses to equip healthcare and wellness providers with the knowledge and resources to help people reduce the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. To learn more, go to usagainstalzheimers.org and click on Brain Health Academy. 
Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Karen and Chris Siegel and from our corporate sponsors, Biogen, Esai, and Eli Lilly. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us for new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of every month.